The big tech companies are at each other's throats, and it's all due to a bad week in privacy, and we'll tell you why. This week, we have a special two-part interview that goes into the drama that led to this year's DerbyCon being the last. The Department of Justice is kicking a bunch of bad junk off the internet. Good. More room for our podcast. <laughs> Securiosity starts now. Welcome to Securiosity. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Greg, we have a really interesting podcast this week. Yeah, so look, we generally keep things lighthearted around here, but there's been some controversy that has come up around DerbyCon, a popular security conference that recently announced it's shutting down after this year's event. Uh, in the aftermath, there has been a lot of mudslinging going around, particularly around some harassment that's been waged in a private Facebook group. We're going to talk to somebody who has faced repeated harassment that she's endured since DerbyCon's announcement, and we're also going to talk to somebody who has had firsthand access to that private Facebook group as well as DerbyCon. So, Furthermore, the interviews highlight how poor behavior of a few is bringing down the stature of everybody, no matter their race, gender, or sexual orientation. Some really interesting stuff. Uh, look forward to getting into it. So speaking of poor behavior, there's been a ton of it in the news lately. So it was quite a week for iPhone users after it was discovered that a bad flaw in FaceTime allowed people to eavesdrop on one another. Apple has disabled group chat in FaceTime until it can issue a patch for the bug. But for a few hours, anyone who figured out how to manipulate the bug could listen in and watch on FaceTime call recipients with ease. Greg, when Apple has bugs, that really go for broke, don't they? Yeah, this is, for a few hours, it was chaos in figuring out how this could work. And if you had a, I think it went all the way back to an iPhone 7 or 8. As long as you had FaceTime on a phone yeah. or FaceTime on a MacBook device, this could be ex exploited. You added some, you added yourself to a FaceTime group call. And next thing you know, you could hear somebody on the other end without Before them knowing. Yeah. Or if you pressed a certain button in a certain way, you suddenly had video and God knows what happened. I saw some <laughs> tweets of somebody uh, on Twitter saying, I've done this to about seven people and I've had a whole array of different landscapes that I've seen. I've seen dates. I've seen meetings. I've seen God knows what. Like, <laughs> that's extremely frightening. Awesome. Um, and yeah, so... Saying that they really go for broke, I, I, Apple does not have these huge bugs all the time, but it reminds me of the bug that they had, uh, I believe it was late 2017, where you could just type root into a preference menu and hammer enter without entering a password, and suddenly you had um, root of a machine. And if you were fancy enough to figure out how to exploit it through their VNC video, you could take control of somebody's computer. Um, it, and to be very honest, I was shown how to do that remote exploit on the VNC. So it was extremely easy <laughs> to pull off. So it's it's crazy when Apple has these big bugs that they are so easy to pull off. I know, I think teenagers that were smart enough to figure out that this was going on had a field day oh, earlier yeah. this week oh, and just yeah. pranking each other and figuring out how this was. So, um, yeah, I mean, this this stuff happens. Not great, and and it it's speaks. Rare. It, it's rare. It just also speaks to scale because if something were to happen like this, or I don't I don't know on on 
Slack or, or any other devices, it wouldn't be that big of a deal because they're not the biggest company in the world. So when the biggest company in the world has these sort of things, it tends to be a fire just on a scale preference too. But, oh boy, uh, I, Apple does such a good job with just security of their systems overall and the walled garden and everything like that. And then stuff like this happens where it's like, holy crap, guys, yeah. like, watch how you ship stuff. Come on, come on. You, you, you're the biggest company in the world. You have some QA people when it comes to code. Just use them. Yeah. Just use them. So although Facebook, another giant, seems to be unable to stop infuriating tech watchdogs, the company's efforts to regain the public trust may have found quantifiable progress in at least one category, hiring more humans to work on safety and security. The company now has roughly 30,000 employees assigned to safety and security, exceeding its own goal of having 20,000 workers focused on those issues, according to Nathaniel Gleischer, the head of cybersecurity for the company. Facebook also announced recent additions to the privacy team, including Nate Cardozo, who up until this week worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Robin Green, who is leaving her role at the Open Technology Institute to focus on law enforcement access and data protection issues. Both hires were announced Tuesday, the same day that Facebook had news drop that they were paying users between the ages of 13 and 35 up to 20 bucks to install an app that collected data on their private messages and social media apps, photos, videos, emails, browsing history, location information, and some other data <laughs> floating around out there as well. Jen, sounds like these new hires are going to be busy. A ton of work. So wait, people who are 35 years old agreed to exchange 20 bucks to give them all of their data? Yeah. Uh, this was, uh, a, I, I want to say, a private program. Facebook says it wasn't that private despite the fact that there's been some uh, reporting that either these people signed NDAs or were explicitly told, like, hey, if you're going to be part of this program, please shut up. Like, we're not only giving you money for your data, we're also kind of buying your silence, which I would like to think that my silence would be more than 20 bucks. I but, would too, yeah. So, but here's the thing about I actually don't mind the business setup here a little bit. It is the poorly construed instructions that went into how this was all working, including the fact that they went around Apple's App Store rules right. and there was the yeah. whole flap about Apple pulling enterprise certs from Facebook this week as well on top of that. I mean, this, this while it doesn't affect the consumers, really, that's a huge deal to have one huge tech company stealing developer certificates back from another huge tech company because they violated each other's rules. Like this is, this really is a sort of, uh, I don't want to say a trade war, but it's business war and it's all over just a way to co collect data. Like I can't imagine that Facebook thinks that this was really worth it. I can't imagine that either, and I also can't imagine that um, many 13-, 14-year-old, 50-year-olds' um, parents who obviously had to give them some sort of permission to be able to download this app and agree to the 20 bucks or whatever it was um, had a clue what they were agreeing to. Yeah, did they really get permission, well, though? I mean, yeah. that, that's not the I, – I wouldn't put that I mean, on the biggest – like, if there was a bullet right. point of everything that went wrong here, I, that, that would probably be closer to the bottom. Sure, because but I still, feel like I mean – I just feel like overall there are people on Facebook that lie about their age. I mean, catfishing is still a thing. So we, <laughs> we know that not everybody on Facebook is says sure. who they are. Yeah. But 
I, I, I don't – yeah, the market research aspect to me just it isn't that big of a deal if they were just outright with it in, in some form. Like the deception over getting it to sideload on people's phones. And it's it's, it's, it's yeah. just bad business for a company that doesn't need the, the bad press. But then again, they had their earnings call this week. I think there was record revenue. So I'm sure there's a bunch of people <laughs> on Facebook going, you know, I, I don't care. Doesn't matter, yeah. yeah. Right, which is terrible and we'll probably have another Facebook story in a week. From now, oh, about I'm sure. This sort of stuff. So great. So the Justice Department on Wednesday announced that it had been infiltrated. The Justice Department announced on Wednesday that it had infiltrated a sprawling botnet that had blamed the North Korean government for proliferating. The so-called Janat botnet had been around for a decade thanks to devices left unpatched. And after getting a search warrant and court order, justice officials are saying enough is enough. They've mapped the botnet's network and begun notifying victims. Assistant Attorney General John Demers described the operation in no less ambitious terms as an effort to eradicate the threat that North Korea state hackers pose to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. Greg, this seems like another version of naming and shaming. It is. Uh, it's reminiscent of what happened with the North Korean hacker that the DOJ indicted a few months ago. And to be fair, he was mentioned in this announcement because this was one of the botnets that North Korea used to launch uh, the WannaCry attacks. So this is keeping up with, you know, the full court press to out uh, North Korea's hacking teams and make sure that the whole world knows that America is watching over these networks and will do what it takes to, uh, like what Demers said, to, quote, eradicate the threat North Korea really presents. That being said, they're just they're they're going to find another way to spin up uh, another. Oh, botnet. absolutely! Like, yeah. I mean, it, it really is a, a whack-a-mole thing here, which I I don't know what the DOJ is supposed to do otherwise. I mean, I wonder if they get a bonus for getting called out by the U.S. government. <laughs> now, there, there's a story. There is a story that would be really interesting to find out. So, small Silicon Valley players are considering security in ways that once darling startups like Facebook and Uber did not. That's mostly because of pressure from investors and demands from corporate heavyweights that understand entering into a new partnership means introducing new risks. After all, 59% of companies say they were breached because of a third party, and 42% say the event had occurred within the last year, according to some recent Ponemon surveys. Uh, a quote from David Hannigan, who is Director of Information Security at Spotify, when talking about this phenomenon is, often with startups, the whole point is to go fast because you can make a mistake and you can quickly fix it. But you might have a bunch of teams all really going fast and they're empowered to make their own decisions about whether or not to fix a small security risk. And that might be a small risk for each of them, but if other groups are also doing that, those risks can combine into a larger issue. Jen, so obviously you work in the startup world. Is this a good change you're seeing? And have you had anything like this come up when you've seen your companies be approached by bigger ones for an acquisition or a partnership? So I would say that, um, you know, certainly, and we've invested in 73 cybersecurity companies, and I would say it seems like companies are making a more conscious effort to make sure everything's secure. Um, and actually, we, we've been seeing a randomly um, new social media groups um, come out um, and saying that they can beat out the Facebooks of the world because they're more secure and they're going to stop fake news from coming out and kind of sort of shake your head at it a little bit. But it's um, it's kind of interesting in general to see that, yeah, they're able to move a lot faster, but they are 
started moving a little bit slower just to make things sure things are secure. Right. And th- this speaks to something that we have been hearing a lot in that companies overall are starting to get the risk that's involved with cybersecurity. And because of that risk, before they enter in with partnerships, whether it is a smaller startup or you're talking, you know, uh, bigger startups like the, the bigger startups, the Cyber Reasons, the Silences, or even the more established companies like the McAfee's or Semantics of the world, where they're getting like 100-page questionnaires that they need to go through yeah. in order to enter into a business agreement with them. And I think that that is very interesting in that, well, what's in those questionnaires? And are we sure that one questionnaire is the same as the other questionnaire? Not that they necessarily need to be standardized because every business has their own risk. But at the same time, you know, are we asking the right questions? And are in the vein of this story, if you are approaching things that way, are you approaching things the right way with those questions? So I think that this story that we had, check it out. Jeff Stone wrote it on CyberScoop. It's a really interesting scratch at the surface to the way that things are changing between the way that bigger companies are leveraging startups to help them out with cybersecurity. Absolutely. Um, so an online marketplace that facilitated more than $68 million in fraud and cybercrime has been shut down following an international law enforcement operation. Hackers and thieves use the website known as XDIC to sell access to compromised computers located around the world and personal information belonging to U.S. residents. Buyers could search the site by price, operating system, or geographic region from where it was stolen, prosecutors said. The method of access was usually through credentials for remote desktop protocol servers. The DOJ didn't name any victims, but said they included major metropolitan transit organizations, emergency services, government agencies, pension funds, universities, and others. Greg, this seems to be a bit more involved than the botnet squashing we talked about earlier. Yeah, uh, this website had been around for a while, and I know that the government had sort of chased them off the public internet. Um, They were on the public internet for a while, and then they got chased onto the dark web, and I think they got followed onto the dark web. And um, I, this has been something that has been watched for a while. I know, I think it was Kaspersky actually. Kaspersky put out the, a big report in 2016 that talked about this marketplace. And I think this marketplace has been, uh, you know, under the gun for a while, whether it was through um, the U.S. government or other governments around the world. And I know with this, this wasn't just a U.S. government takedown. There were a lot of offices involved. DHS was involved. The U.S. Treasury was involved. But I know Europol was involved as well. So this really was an international affair. And again, we were talking about whack-a-mole earlier. This is, this is whack-a-mole. If you, if, you sell, if you sell exploits that affect businesses and affect the money lines, you're eventually going to run into law enforcement. $68 million doesn't seem like a lot of money. It, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I guess it doesn't, but still at the same time, uh, tell that to the businesses that probably went sure. to the FBI yeah. or yeah. Europol and were like, hey, guys, can you help us out here? Like, we're, we're losing millions of dollars. Yeah. So, um, yeah, not not the biggest market in the world, but still worth, you know, a good takedown, yeah. making the internet safer. So, Speaking of cybercrime, we have a new APT group Woo! this week. FireEye came out and labeled a new threat group that targets telecommunications and travel companies in search of data on specific individuals. APT39. 
Their activity looks to be related to Iranian state interests. Researchers said the group had toolkit overlaps with other Iran-linked groups, but the use of malware variants and a distinct objective warrants classifying it as a new group, according to FireEye. Starting with a phishing campaign, APT39 uses a combination of custom and common tools to establish backdoors and conduct recon in all of the target systems. From there, the group looks for information pertaining to customers who are persons of interest to Iran. So, Jen, just overall, let's get right down to the most important part here. What animal are we calling this? Carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeon. Interesting. You went with a bird. I I was thinking more of uh, a snake. I had snake in my head like... Desert venom or okay. something. But telecommunications like and travel. So you've got to get, I get it. Yeah. I'm into it. I think yeah. I like yours better than I like mine. Yes. Okay. All right. uh, FireEye, uh, CrowdStrike, anybody else that does high level APT reports, you're, use, use our name. We're claiming this. Yes. Carrier Pigeon. Carrier Pigeon. Carrier Pigeon. We want to see this out there. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Must credit CyberScoop. So curiosity. CyberScoop. Whatever. Cool. Carry a pigeon. Go with it. A 21-member panel of elective officials, former U.S. Justice Department officials, and nonprofit leaders convened last year by University of Pittsburgh Research Institute to review Pennsylvania's election systems released its final report on Tuesday, recommending the state move as quickly as possible to replace its touchscreen voting, touch voting machines and implement stronger cybersecurity procedures to protect the statewide voter registration database. The state, along with the feds, should help the state's 67 counties purchase new voting systems before the 2020 election, if not before elections for local offices later this year. Greg, do you think anything will actually come of this? Um, It's interesting because I am not in the know for the Pennsylvania legislature, but I think that it should, based off conversations that I had with a high-ranking DHS official, a a former high-ranking DHS official, when uh, the election security stuff started to bubble up and just conversations that I was having, well, where are the weak points? And this official said to me, if you're going to look into this, I would start with Pennsylvania. Not that Pennsylvania was hacked, not that Pennsylvania was at some great malfeasance or fault, just that the technology that they were using there was some of the more archaic is no one else using is no one else using touchscreens well no there's plenty of other places that are using touchscreens but the, the conversation that i had was that pennsylvania was one of the states that really needed an upgrade because of the technology huh. that they were using just it, it, it needed it. it needed it more than anything else so and i say this as somebody who um grew up i i said so I said I'm not familiar with Pennsylvania legislature. However, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I do still have ties to the state. Sure. And I do know some people up there that do work in uh, election security stuff. So I'm just saying I, I hear things, and this is well needed. This is well needed. So I hope that something does come of this. Whether it does, well, that's up to the election. Very officials. interesting. So we haven't had this for a while, but we're back to our VC corner. We actually have some funding news that came across this week. Uh, One company that saw a raise for Tanix, a cloud security company, announced Wednesday it raised $23 million in a Series B funding round led by Intel Capital with participation from past investors Foundation Capital and Neotribe. 
The company offers two main platforms that are meant to protect the data clients use and the various keys they need to run their applications. Their products are aimed at enterprises that rely on cloud services for their infrastructure and containerization to run their applications. And also a company, Medigate, a startup that offers cybersecurity services specific to medical devices, raised $15 million in Series A funding. The company's platform identifies medical devices on a network, fingerprints them, and monitors them for suspicious activity. The company says that medical devices need specialized security attention, of course they do, and that broader IoT security just doesn't cut it. Context like what the data is being used for and what other systems the devices are communicating with are important when it comes to clinical networks, the company says. They're similar to startups like CyberMDX, Scenario. I believe that they are also similar to ThreatCare, which I know you work with, Jen, and they're all in early stages of entering the market. So which two of these raises are interesting to you? So usually I jump right on the the earliest company in the mix because it's the kind of companies I like. But I just kind of feel like when it comes to Medigate, there seems to be an influx of companies that are trying to solve that very real problem. Um, so a little bit less interesting to me at this point. So I'm going to have to pick the first one. Um, you know, given that they're raising 23 million bucks in a Series B probably means that they're doing pretty well and probably have a product that works um, and probably are legitimately securing. Yeah. Like, that's interesting to me because I feel like like nothing against Fortanix and their product. I, I read this and their product sounds similar to a lot of things oh, that are also yeah. out there on the market. I understand that everybody's running into the cloud, so there's going to be yeah. market share and, and that's available. But it's, it, it's another – I feel like it's a very crowded marketplace. It is a crowded marketplace. So the, the Medigate really sounds interesting to me that I – while sorry, I lost my train of thought. So Medigate is really interesting to me because while this is heavily specialized and you were talking about all of these companies really do concentrate on the same thing, I, I feel like there's still market share out there where there isn't that market share for, for the cloud security vendors. Like it's not as crowded. So when it comes to companies working on medical devices, um, the security around them, you know, there's a ton of market share there. Right? I think most people haven't implemented this yet in their hospitals. But it's just we're seeing so many companies get funded. We're seeing so many companies start uh, that are trying to tackle this problem. And so now I think there's enough of these. And we just need to see someone get far enough along where they can actually get past a pilot stage and implement them. Uh, so I'm hoping that's, that Medigate is there um, because it, it does need to get solved. Uh, but I think we've... We've probably spent enough of that um, Series C, Series A capital in this industry, and it's time to move somebody else far enough along um, so that this problem can get solved. Because right. it is it is a legit problem that needs to, to be solved. So now to our interviews. First, we speak to Georgia Weedman, who's the CTO of Shavira, um, which is a portfolio company of mine that also went through Mach 37, and author of a well-known penetration testing book. Georgia has been in the news due to some controversy over DerbyCon shutting down, and some incidents that have been taken place at past DerbyCons that led her to being harassed when the current news went live. We also talked to Joshua Marpet from Redline Consulting, Josh also was part of Mach 37 with his last startup. He's a member of the face group known as Ilmop and has also been head of security at DerbyCon. 
Il Mop, filled with numerous infosec experts, has been in the news because a number of the group members were shown to be misogynistic or hostile towards women in infosec, including Georgia. The interviews are long, but we wanted to give equal time so everyone could get a full snapshot of what's going on. Okay, joining us now is Georgia Weedman, the founder and CTO, right, of Shavira. Thanks for joining us, and let's talk about what uh, Shavira does. Talk to me about your company. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, Shavira does a lot of things, as most startups do, but our main focus is uh, testing the effectiveness of security around mobility and the Internet of Things. So if you have preventative products that you're buying, mobile threat defense, enterprise mobility management, things like that, seeing whether they actually provide you any value. You'd be surprised how much some of it actually doesn't provide you a lot of value. We also do you know, the entire penetration testing spectrum. So we're more on the testing side. We're not really a preventative technology. We help you find your vulnerabilities and figure out what you need to do to fix them, but particularly around mobility and the Internet of Things. What types of issues are you finding when you're testing mobile devices? Well, there's a lot of different things. I mean, everything from phishing, you know, phishing's still really big on the email side, certainly. You know, that's number one way to get in. Does it become a big problem on the mobile side? It, it definitely is. Um, you know, we're starting to see a lot with text messages. We're starting to see things with, like, Twitter and WhatsApp. Um, you know, we've got some stuff in our product with uh, near-field communication and QR codes as well. Um, but the biggest part is that I think people aren't getting any security awareness training around, you know, they under- a lot of people know don't click on links in emails. They may not know don't click in links in WhatsApp or, or text message. So we really need to, you know, bridge that gap. Um, there's also, you know, a lot with um, mobile applications that are malicious, um, you know, it's really hard to, I guess, for like an antivirus type product to decide, you know, what's malicious and what's not. It's really hard for an end user as well. So simulating, you know, malicious apps is a lot of what we do as well to see, you know, what they can steal off the device. You know, if it's on the local network, can it like pivot on to other machines? Could it get on your laptop if we were on the same um, network right now and you know you had an unpatched vulnerability on your machine and you know the user's phone may just have you know their corporate email and things like that but you might have you know the customer database so um, you know using a phone as a pivot point you know there's you know we saw the FaceTime vulnerability yesterday um, you know a lot of the chips in there um, you know ha- can have vulnerabilities in them as well so we do you know work with malicious cell towers and malicious Bluetooth and things like that you know find these vulnerabilities and you know how they can affect your organization I mean a lot of people like to wave their hands and be like well nobody's actually doing that but I mean we have seen uh, particularly like state-sponsored actors doing that for sure and and it's just going to become more pervasive as you know the PCs and things like that become more secure so how did you get your start in cybersecurity well I went to college early I went at 14 instead of you know the usual 18 or so and I did a math degree and I really didn't want to be a computer scientist because my mother was one and what teenager wants to be like their parents <laughs> um, but then I you know couldn't really find a job at 18 with a bachelor's degree and no work experience so I got asked to do a master's degree in computer science and they were going to give me money which was better than having to live with my parents you see a theme here and uh, th- so I did that and they had a cyber defense club 
and Michael Wellman hates it when I say this, but the captain of the Cyber Defense Club was really hot, and <laughs> I wanted to get close to him, so knowing nothing about cybersecurity, I joined the Cyber Defense Club, and we competed in the Mid-Atlantic Cyber Defense Competition, and I didn't get the guy, but the next year I was the captain, and found what I wanted to do with my life. So I'm interested to hear a little bit more on the further part too, because you've put out a book that's been pretty well uh, regarded in the pen testing space. So kind of talk to me a little bit about the evolution of that. Well, I was approached by the publisher, No Starch Press, about doing a book. Since my primary research interest is mobility, I think they probably expected I was going to do a mobile book, but I insisted I wanted to do introduction to penetration testing, very hands-on, very, like, forgiving of people who don't have a lot of background with, like, using Linux or programming, you know, starting at the very beginning and working our way up. And luckily they were down with it. And, yeah, so I wrote a book, Penetration Testing, uh, Hands-On Introduction to Hacking. Had to think for a second there. Um, And it's... I've been very lucky that a lot of people have really liked it. A lot of people have, you know, said that it is the reason that they were able to get into this industry. I kind of wanted to write the book that I wished I had had when I was starting out because I was trying to, you know, learn this stuff. And so much of what was online, it was just like you had to know so much background that a lot of it I didn't have. And if I asked questions, you got a lot of, you know, get off noob kind of things. So I really wanted to be able to fill in that gap. And, you know, I'm currently working on uh, the second edition of that book. So look out for an update sometime in the near future. Yeah, you gave me um, instant credibility at Black Hat last year. I was um, having lunch with a bunch of guys from NSA, and one of them said the thing they were most looking forward to was meeting you to do, like, your book signing. Um, And I was like, oh, yeah, she's one of my portfolio company CEOs or CTOs. Um, And so I got, like, credibility there. Well, they should have us in. You know, (laughs) if they think that I'm cool, they should have us in to to uh, demo Shavira, we would love to help the NSA. (laughs) So on the uh, Shavira front, you were just saying there that you'd look for really the value in mobility products and the IoT space, and you said that sometimes they don't really have the value that everybody thinks that they do. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Well, I think, you know, when Bring Your Own Device started happening when, you know, the CEO got an iPhone and wanted to put it on the network and... I mean, we already had BlackBerry Bez even, so there was even a line item for something to control mobile, even though Blackberries were getting phased out in uh, favor of, you know, iPhones and Androids. But I think a lot of people, you know, rightfully, people who are more business savvy than certainly I was when I came into Mach 37, um, realized they could just put the word mobile in front of their product for PC, you know, do hand wavy something, you know, without ever really one understanding what the market needed and two actually having to build something that worked because who was going to say, and then they could sell, you know, and to each employee instead of, you know, one license for their PC. Now you can get their iPad and their Android phone. So I think there's a lot of that. I think the market is waking up to it. You know, there is Gartner for mobile threat defense now, Um, I think, you know, just based on my clientele, I'm getting a fair number of people who are like, I don't really know if this is working. Maybe we should test it. So I think the market is starting to wake up that, you know, just because 
a preventative product, and this isn't just in mobile. I mean, we see, like, Equifax and all these other people getting breached. You're, you can't tell me that those people didn't have, you know, every preventative product under the sun that told them, if you install this, you don't have to worry about security anymore. So, you know, they don't patch, they don't do security awareness training because their vendors told them they didn't have to anymore. So it's a real problem, and I'm hoping to fix it in my small way. Great. Another thing that we wanted to talk about here beyond your company that's come up over the past week, week and a half, is the noise around DerbyCon and the conversations around DerbyCon, particularly within the InfoSec community on some private groups on Facebook that have taken into account and and, and really have some directed some comments uh, your way about what has gone on at these cons and then you also fired off on Twitter about what has happened at some of these cons. So we wanted to talk to you about what has happened and whether we can clear the air and talk about some of the behavior that has gone on at some of these cons because I feel like within the community it's been a really big sticking point to the maturation of the way that the InfoSec community behaves at some of these cons. So uh, I would love to give you the floor to sort of talk about the background of how we got here and, and what can we do moving forward. So let's take a moment to back up. DerbyCon is a popular InfoSec conference based in Louisville, Kentucky. 2019 would have been the ninth year for the conference until the organizers released an announcement earlier this month saying that this year would be the last. This announcement was vague as to what exactly caused the organizers to shut it down, with the blog post reading that there is a small yet vocal group of people creating negativity, polarization, and disruption with the primary intent of self-promotion to advance a career for personal gain or for more social media followers. That announcement led to a number of people to turn to private Facebook groups to voice their displeasure over DerbyCon's closing. Those comments veered from people venting to misogynistic attacks. On top of that, there was some back and forth on Twitter between past DerbyCon attendees, which only poured more fuel on the fire. Okay, back to Georgia. So, I mean, my initial distaste with the whole situation was how DerbyCon chose to write their blog post, if you will, about how they were shutting down. They couldn't have done better to incite a riot against women in InfoSec and at the same time make themselves look like victims. And, I mean, these are media-savvy individuals. They're on the TV all the time. They can't say they didn't know. I don't buy it for a second. And they could have just said they need to focus on other endeavors. You know, the professional thing to do when you you shut something down. I mean, could you summarize for us exactly like what they said? Actually, that's that's next. I actually brought in a couple quotes from there. Um, and, and so this isn't the whole post. You can go to derbycon.org if you want to read the whole post. But uh, a couple quotes from it. There's a small yet vocal group of people creating negativity, polarization, and disruption with the primary intent of self-promotion to advance a career for personal gain or for more social media followers. And another quote, to put it in perspective, we had to deal with an individual that was verbally and mentally abusive to a number of our volunteer staff and security to the point where they were in tears. So I, I do have to give them some props for that. Many men would be ashamed to admit they shut down their con because a girl made them cry. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to divulge any more details if you have any more information on that we can talk about it but talk about a little bit do you know the behind the scenes because that statement from the DerbyCon blog post seems to be very vague 
So I'm wondering what exactly it is that they're talking about here, because it does seem that there's a little bit of both sides-ism there, and it, that doesn't seem to be helping things at all. Well, they've not been willing to talk about exactly what they're talking about, um, which you know might be part of the problem. Um, but what ended up happening, you know, as one would expect, um, in kind of a Gamergate fashion, if you will, a bunch of people uh, started attacking women, particularly any woman who had ever said anything about DerbyCon. I mean, last year at DerbyCon, um, someone went so far as to tweet uh, their distaste about, you know, a sexist slur at DerbyCon. And uh, so she became a meme on the internet called Battle among other screw you for ruining our con you'll never work in this town again type rhetoric and this is someone who's like trying to break into infosec and she's just being mobbed on the internet why was there such derision towards this person like what exactly caused the community to turn around and and make her some like meme on, on the internet what did she do well she wrote last year at DerbyCon. um there was um Something in front of the mental health village about, like, what makes you feel better. And then people wrote, you know, like, boobies and Me Too and things like that on it, you know. Which is, you know, and it's not like anybody tried to burn the con down. It's like, you know, these are... We're in a time, finally, where we can talk about things that are, you know, not appropriate. And, you know, it's hardly worthy of, you know, getting this much hate. But since I guess she was the last one who complained about DerbyCon, she got, you know, most of the the flack. But, I mean, there were plenty of women in general ruined our con. This was our favorite con, and now we can't have it anymore because the women are too sensitive. Which is, you know, if, if you remember Gamergate, exactly how that started. And I really don't want to see my industry turn into that. So it, it made me sort of upset to see this going on. That hashtag me too um, below boobies, which I think sort of started this off, just seems to me um, a little bit insignificant to really like cause a riot, right? Like it just seems, it just seems ridiculous that that's something that would like set people off and really cause a, a con to close, right? That's just, it's such an insignificant thing. We've seen much um, bigger things happen at other cons um, to the extent that like a DEF CON every year reports the number of rapes, the number of sexual assaults and stuff at the end of it. So to have someone, you know, tweet out something written on a board seems kind of ridiculous to close down a con. Yeah, and I'm sure there was more to it than that, but I mean, people are not that smart when on the internet, I guess it seems. So it's like, this is the person we're going to attack. Um, but yeah, I mean, that wasn't, it wasn't, it was a tweet, big deal. I mean, you're gonna, if you run, I mean, I get hate, everybody gets hate. So DerbyCon got some hate and, you know, they ran away with their tail between their legs. Now, a part of the controversy came from a tweet that you said that you felt unsafe or, or maybe you didn't feel unsafe, that you just had a problem at 2013 DerbyCon and that paled in comparison almost to sexual assault try that you went through. Can you talk about what happened at DerbyCon, that specific incident and what made you so uncomfortable? Well, sure. Uh, So, yeah, I did post something a bit provocative on Twitter. I mean, it was kind of a a jump on the grenade kind of thing. Um, You know, despite the fact that I'm a startup founder and I have to be nice to everyone always, because they may one day be in a position to buy, invest, you know, you name it. Um, but I guess I realized that this, you know, women in infosec thing is actually way more important than me. Um, so I can't just stand by and watch my industry get torn apart um, over this women in tech thing. 
Um, so anyway, the tweet I said, I said DerbyCon in 2013 did more damage to my career and my life um, than Confidence 2013, which is another conference, where I had to bash a guy in the face with a coffee cup to keep him from raping me. Okay, yes, a little uh, provocative there. Um, if if folks are gonna target put a target on me, you know I'm fine that we use it as a learning opportunity to advance our industry and, and society. But you know confidence, you know that was kind of open and shut. You know, dude tried to rape me. I hit him in the head. That was that. Um, but at DerbyCon, um, you know, it was kind of the whole community. It felt like um, turned on me. The people I thought my, were my peers accused me of making the whole thing up. I mean, this was a few months after Confidence of being too ugly uh, to bother raping. Um, this, to me, was more traumatic than the actual assault. And I was in sort of a post-traumatic spiral, if you will. I mean, the Me Too movement has really helped me understand like that it's completely normal to kind of go off the rails a little bit after you know an experience like that. And it's not anything to be ashamed of. And, you know, I, people were being actively hostile to me. And, you know, the thing they want to talk about is that, you know, I was drinking on stage. And, look, these cons, they hand out drinks to speakers on stage or while you're presenting. And they brag about out drinking the Kentucky Derby. If a man gets drunk presenting, it's epic. But as a woman, my getting tipsy demonstrates I was unprofessional. I mean, they want to go on and say that, you know, I had spikes on my jacket, which is true. I did. Um, but, I mean, this is an event where, you know, people literally show up dressed as stormtroopers. So it's it's such a double standard for, I think, women and minorities. You know, I, I think for a lot of time I, I didn't want to believe, you know, in the isms, the sexisms, and the racisms. I wanted it to be just about me because then I could fix it. Um but, you know, in talking to other women and minorities, it's it really seems like there's such a double standard. I mean, we all know this, but, you know, we're finally in a time, I think, with Me Too and Time's Up where, you know, we can realize that, you know, these aren't fair and they need to be changed and, you know, it should be equality for all. Yeah, so let's back up a second there. Are you talking about, so the 2013 DerbyCon that you were tweeting about, you're, that was the con where you gave the talk where you were drinking on stage yeah so and so basically so were you actually drunk during the talk or like was it just oh okay i mean i've been to these cons too like i i, I know that like it's it's yeah. open where there's just if you want to hang out and have a beer while you are talking about some stuff that that happens so and i, I agree with you there, there shouldn't be anything wrong with that so let's what, say for you? the sake of argument that i was falling down drunk Find me, you know, anyone who has never done a talk or a training or a VC pitch or a media interview or anything else that didn't go well and wasn't well received, especially, you know, while they were recovering from the trauma of a sexual assault. And I'll find you someone who isn't trying very hard. <laughs> okay. Okay. So moving forward, I mean... DerbyCon is just one con. Is this something that you have seen uh, across the board? Like, talk to me about other cons that you've been to. Uh, like, how pervasive is this type of behavior, or at least, or how pervasive is this behavior that you've witnessed? Well, I guess I've been lucky in that, 
since, you know, the confidence thing where, you know, I kind of got a reputation for smashing people's faces if they bother me, I have not um, had any other, you know, sexual assault type situations. But, I mean, I hear about them, like, almost constantly at every con. Um, it certainly happens. Um, but in terms of, you know, harassment towards women, I mean, just at ShmooCon just a couple weeks ago, um, you know, I I wasn't witness to this. I wasn't even there. But, you know, there were reports that at a vendor booth, you know, someone was telling women that, you know, they shouldn't work in InfoSec. You know, this whole girls can't computer thing has, you know, I feel like played itself out. <laughs> but, I mean, it's certainly, it's still a problem. And, I mean, we see, I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, the Facebook groups, um, which I'm sure we'll get to. But, I mean, a lot of those people who are, you know, speaking up in those groups saying those awful things are you know the staff that you're supposed to go to if you have a problem at these events yeah so so speaking of um ill mob which is one of those facebook groups um i imagine you know i i know a, a few people in it for sure imagine you know a lot of people in it so let's back up one more time ill mob remember those facebook groups we mentioned last time That's Ilmop. The Facebook group mirrors a hacking group that has been around for some time, filled with about 500 members who talk about all sorts of InfoSec-related things. However, after the DerbyCon announcement, some of those comments got ugly and disparaged a bunch of women. Those comments were sent to a reporter at Motherboard, and the following article set off a further firestorm. Georgia was part of that article, so we wanted to talk to Georgia in order to get a better view of how she feels back to her. Do you sort of find that their online personality sort of matches who they are in person? Sometimes, yes. I mean, a lot of it, I mean, in particular, you know, a journalist at Motherboard sent me um, some screenshots from it, particularly about me. And a lot of it, yes. Um, I was not at all surprised. These are the same sort of people who go around saying, you know, Georgia's a train wreck. Georgia's no good. Don't hire Georgia. Don't read Georgia's book. Don't this, that, the other. And for, you know, other women who are, are vocal in, in the InfoSec community. But I was particularly surprised that, I mean, there were a few people who I thought were my friends who were on there saying I was a train wreck. And I, in this whole train wreck thing, it's funny because, you know, the founder of DerbyCon said to me that I was a train wreck at, at DerbyCon 2013 and turned around and told everybody he could possibly find. He can deny it, but this is the only word people ever use about me. It obviously came from somewhere. Like, that entire ill mob group was George is a train wreck. George is a train wreck at every con. So... I mean, and I got a very small amount of it. The stuff that came out of those screenshots, you know, I got some hate, but, you know, there are other women in security who are getting it a lot more. And I think, you know, part of it is that, you know, I haven't really been vocal on, you know, women in tech issues for a long time. You know, I really wanted to, you know, stay on the party line, if you will. And, you know, because I knew that, Nobody, you know, the men don't want to hear about that as a general rule. It's a good way to, you know, become the enemy, you know, as we see in this DerbyCon situation. But, you know, over time, I guess I've matured as a person. I guess I've realized that it's more important than, you know, being in or trying to be in the cool crowd to, you know, try and fix these things for the women who come after me. 
I mean, I think we watched, um, in the ill mob group, I think we watched, you know, someone who I assume associates themselves with them, um, comment on something that happened to her at a party around, um, one of the cons. And then that group, her peers certainly went out and attacked her too. And I think she was, she appeared to just be giving like that, um, like guys, this actually does happen. This isn't like just, you know, made up in people's heads and, and got attacked. So it's kind of interesting to watch. Um, but even at, um, I saw you tweet out a picture, I think yesterday of yourself at a, you know, at the book signing, um, I think Black Hat or DEF CON. That was at DEF CON. DEF CON. Yeah. I mean, and it seemed like you were, you have this like, I mean, epic book that, um, has a cult following, right? A lot of people will credit your book with how they sort of got their start in penetration testing. And then I saw in the picture, um, the other two titles of the books that you were like sort of sitting with. And I just thought, well, that you're not really in the same category there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of surprised me too. You were sort of lumped in with like other female authors that maybe weren't talking about, um, something technical. That's true. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I've kind of, for a long time did steer away even from, you know, some of the women in tech issues, you know, for fear I'd be blackballed by the community. Joke's on me, it happened anyway. Um, so, you know, it kind of opened the door for me to to be more involved in those areas. But, yeah, I mean, I've always been, you know, very technical, but, I mean, especially, you know, in light of stuff like this, I, I think I do have to raise my voice for women in tech issues more. I don't necessarily know if I'm going to write a book about it, but maybe a blog post. We'll see. What do you think needs to happen um, at the cons going forward to make it sort of a safer, more friendly environment towards women and minorities? You know, that is the million-dollar question, and, you know, and the little, you know, conversation I had with, you know, the DerbyCon founders um, after, you know, I gave my tweet and they got mad, um, is, you know, they're like, you know, women need to tell us how to fix this. And I don't necessarily, you know, I personally know nothing about running cons. I, you know, I'm not a great people person. I, maybe that's why I'm technical. I, I couldn't do it on the best of days or do it well. Um, but I, I definitely think it's going to take more than just, you know, the women and minorities you know, doing the the labor of trying to fix this problem. I think it's something that, you know, we're going to have to all come together and fix, but I'm certainly not going to volunteer to sit on that board because I don't have any... Ex- I, I've never even, like, volunteered at a con. I know I'm not good at it. I want to back up to something uh, a little bit about Ilma because I've seen some conversation since uh, the Motherboard article came online that the way that this this Facebook group runs is they generally talk about infosec things and then there's five or six people that act like assholes and that and then people rush to defend them and they've defended Ilman to say, okay, well that's not everybody. There are assholes in this group, but not everybody is an asshole. Has anybody from the group since the article has come online to come out and say, well, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have said that? Have they been conciliatory or uh, apologized in any sort of way? I've not seen anybody who has uh, said anything, um, you know, bad in there come out and say that. I have seen people say they were sorry that they stood by, which I think is important. Is that's I mean, uh, the real part of the rhetoric about it right now is that, like you said, you know, most of it's technical discussion. But I mean, if 
if the barrier to getting to see this technical discussion is having, if you are a woman or a minority is, you know, having to look at this stuff, you know, that, I mean, that's terrible. That just makes it that much harder to get the technical knowledge that you need. Um, but I, I've not seen anybody say that. I mean, I, I, I mentioned that, you know, a couple of people I thought were my friends were on there, you know, talking about me and, uh, you know, I said something to them about it and, you know, they act like they didn't do anything wrong. So, I mean, I think the people who really believe that, you know, women don't belong in InfoSec or women can't computer or, you know, people who aren't white can't computer, um, you know, they're, it's going to take a lot to change their mind. But I think the bigger issue is that so many people stood by and, and just let it happen because um, it doesn't have to be a majority of people who think these sorts of things. I mean, look at history. It doesn't start big. It starts small. So I think we have a lot of work to do. Great. So, Georgia, on to curiosity, we end every interview with one random question out of nowhere. But we were talking earlier uh, about horses. So I wouldn't even uh, frame it as a question. Just talk to me about this hobby that you have with horse riding. Uh, hobby is a, it doesn't even begin to describe it. It's like a second job now. Um, so I, Actually, when I came to the Mach 37 program, um, I uh, was told by one of the advisors that I really needed to do something besides work all the time because I have, you know, a pretty bad habit of burning myself out. And I had rode horses as a kid, so I decided I would, you know, go take a riding lesson. And it snowballed. And now I have a horse who I love very much. His name is Tempo, but he eats all my money, literally, <laughs> all of it. I, I never buy anything for myself. You know, Jen always has nice jewelry. And I'm like, well, Tempo got a new blanket. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, uh, we compete in local horse shows on the weekends when we can around the startup stuff. I always bring work with me and rarely get it done. Um, yeah, he, he's wonderful. He's uh, my best friend because um, he doesn't care, you know, if I didn't land the deal or, you know, I didn't, you know, raise the money from that VC or anything like that. So, yeah, I absolutely love Tempo to death. So shout out to Tempo. Great. Georgia, thank you very much <laughs> thank you, Georgia. for taking the time to talk to us about this. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it as well. So now we're going to talk to Joshua Marpet. Joshua is part of Illmob and also head of security for DerbyCon. We talked to him about the announcement. We also talked to him about Illmob, and we talk about the scenarios that Georgia spoke about during her interview. Check it out. Okay, now we are talking to Joshua Marpet from Redline Consulting. Joshua, uh, really appreciate you coming on board to speak with us today. Uh, first off, Talk to us a little bit about Red Lion and what exactly that entails and uh, what you've been doing. So thank you for having me. Very much appreciate it. Uh, Red Lion is our compliance consulting company. A uh, friend of mine, Scott Lyons, and myself decided we could uh, screw up compliance uh, no more than anybody else, so we might as well try it. We, <laughs> we started a company about, uh, we're going on three years now. And uh, it's been wildly successful and just happy as heck to have it. Uh, we do compliance and advisory services. So effectively, we come in, uh, we do HIPAA, FISMA, FedRAMP, 800-171. Uh, we've been doing a lot of advisory services recently, which is why we sort of added that to the tagline, if you will. Uh, everything from blockchain to cryptocurrency to 
just cryptography, interesting things that are happening in the world. People are like, what should I know about this? And we literally have been holding seminars and what should people know? It's kind of interesting. Anyway, so that that's what we do. So what should people know about blockchain? Oh, okay. Well, uh, so there's a, a couple of pieces of that. So there's blockchain and cryptocurrency. They are very, very distinct. Let's be clear on that. Uh, cryptocurrency is based on blockchain in most circumstances. And, and I'll start having some zealots scream at me about, you know, acyclic graphs and all this stuff. And it's like, just, just chill for a minute, guys. But <laughs> most cryptocurrency right now is a very, very, very horrible idea to invest in. Um, if you're using it for fun, uh, any money you want to put in cryptocurrency, my personal opinion, this is just me, uh, count it as uh, Vegas money. You go to Vegas and you have gambling money. That is money you don't care if you lose. Go for go for broke. Have fun. <laughs> if it's money you care about, like at this point, don't take out a second mortgage for, for Bitcoin. Okay, seriously. <laughs> and in terms of blockchain, blockchain is a fascinating technology. It's actually brilliant in its own way. Will it, however, cure cancer, homelessness? And no, come on, it's not snake oil. What it is, is, is quite simply, it is, uh, you know, just, it's a technology. It has use cases that it's amazing for, and it has plenty of use cases that it is totally the wrong solution for. So if you want to build the next blockchain, uh, you know, for, for, for music, probably a horrible idea. Okay. Um, now, that being said, I should, I should qualify with a disclaimer. Uh, Scott and I are also building a blockchain-based product. So, uh, and that's still in stealth. I'm not going to talk about it too much. But we're utilizing what parts of blockchain are actually great use cases. Again, it's a tool. If it's the right use case, great. But if you use blockchain like the guy who only has a hammer and sees everything as a nail, that's a problem. I agree. I, I would I would definitely agree with you there. And I one question about uh, some of the the advisory services that you have because we have a lot of listeners based here in DC and the the FedRAMP stuff. Talk to me a little bit about what you've been doing with FedRAMP because I've been covering FedRAMP. I feel like longer than I've actually run CyberScoop. So uh, I'd love to hear how that has sort of matured uh, in your eyes and whether it's matured at all and whether the process has sort of changed for the good? Because I know that a lot of companies have complained that the process is very, very long. So I'm wondering whether that has changed at all in your eyes. You know, it's it's the process has changed because we, we're seeing more and more uh, providers, uh, CSPs, cloud service providers, actually do a lot of the work for them, okay? Uh, providing FedRAMP compliant hosting, FedRAMP compliant co-location, FedRAMP compliant platforms, frameworks, blah, you get the idea. And at every stage of that model, and we're talking cloud for a moment here, just just bear with me. Um, for every cloud service provider, they're, they're, whether they're I, you know infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, whatever, uh, they're providing a different amount of the services and pieces and bits and bobs, if you will, of what you need to be FedRAMP compliant. Uh, the problem is, and I'm, I'm just going to go into a little sort of tangent here. The problem is that a lot of people go, oh, it's FedRAMP compliant co-location. I'm done. No, try again. <laughs> because... While uh, any compliance standard can sort of, and this is really rough, this is just something I came up with to explain things, it can be divided into two chunks. One chunk is the data center uh, chunks. That, that, that's the pieces of the standard the data center or the data infrastructure operator has to handle, right? Then there's the chunks that I call the data custodian chunk. The data custodian uh, standards are the pieces that the, the person who is the custodian of the data, normally the company operating the, the application, the platform, whatever, has to handle. If it's your software, 
those pieces of that compliance standard are yours. So whether you have FedRAMP compliant co-location doesn't matter for the data custodian pieces. You still have to perform those, those pieces of it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so that little tangent is to explain that a lot of people are, I'm not going to say getting lazy, but what I'm going to say is that they're not thinking it through. They're, they're not thinking through the idea of, hey, uh, I still have work to do. So, and honestly, right now, a lot of people are, what's the right way to put this? Considering that 800-171 compliance is so bad right now in terms of there's not many companies that are 171 compliant and they're required to be as of, oh, I don't know, a year and a year and a quarter ago now. Um, every federal contractor is required to be 800-171 compliant. So do you really think that every place that they need to be FedRAM compliant, they are? Or do you think that every place they need to be FedRAM compliant to show that they are FedRAM compliant to a prospect, they are? And that was a very, very carefully pointed question. So that being said, I see a lot of companies going for FedRAMP only when they uh, believe that it's going to matter for this contract, for this prospect, for this agency, but they're not doing it as what it was intended to be, which is, as a matter of course, anything that might go government, just make it FedRAMP. And it was supposed to be a fairly, I'm not going to say it was supposed to be simple, but it was supposed to be a, a... a non-threatening compliance standard. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. And unfortunately, because if you say government, like like if you say wedding around flowers, the price goes up by 10 times, you know? If you say government around around anything IT related, the, the price just went up and the complexity goes through the roof. Uh, it's become a threatening sort of standard and people are just not willing to go through the trouble. It's It's not hugely difficult. If you're doing... The, the proper compliance standards to make your data private and secure and proper, you don't have that far to go to be FedRAMP, but they get scared. And so they don't do it unless forced to. That's the wrong attitude. And it's not the one that they originally wanted for FedRAMP. I'm sorry. I, I'm not sure if that really answered your question. I sort of vent that I apologize. No, 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 no. Hey, that's okay. You're not the first person in the world that has ever uh, vented on FedRAMP. But, um, <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> right. So with that being said, the reason that we wanted to have you on is uh, we know that you have been uh, following uh, the drama, so to speak, around what has gone on with DerbyCon and the DerbyCon shutdown, this being its final year, and sort of the conversation that has developed online, particularly around the group, the private Facebook group, Illmob. So uh, I wanted to talk to you. I I would first lead it off by saying, I know that you are part of this group, but talk to me about your interactions with this group and what you've seen in the wake of DerbyCon being shut down after this year. Well, very bluntly, Illmob was, it's no longer, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Illmob was an industry group that was there and I was a member of it for years. I don't, I, I honestly don't even recall how long I've been in it. Uh, and it was there because people were able to find interesting information. I, it was one of my best sources for who's been breached. Uh, what's what interesting new hacks are out there. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, you find out a lot of the stuff at conferences, all the different conferences around the country and world, uh, interesting new hacks, zero days, et cetera. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're wonderful. I run one. But it's it's also that on a daily basis, uh, it used to be everybody got their information from Twitter, but Twitter became a, a, a fire hose 
beyond belief. And it was actually hard to filter down. And it was really a time suck. So now I've got a place that in a, in a quick Facebook group, I can see, oh, look, you know, uh, this company, that company, this group, that group got hacked, uh, breached. Here's the password dump. I can pull it down. I can take a look and see if anybody that, that any of our clients are in it. I can see if anything's going on. I can provide value to my clients. That's useful. Now, in terms of, you know, the, the question is, oh, my God, it's a horrible, horrible group. And the answer is no, not really. Uh, were there a lot of people in it? There, there were 500 people in it, as I understand. Uh, and so 500 people, they're all horrible scumbags. The answer is no, no, of course not. In any group of people, you, you have, uh, you know, effectively a, a quotient of idiots. Okay. In any group of people, I don't care. Every single person on this podcast, listening to this podcast, near someone listening to this podcast knows an idiot in their friend group. Okay. Let's just be clear on that. Uh, when I went through police academy, one of our instructors looked around and said, look, guys, you're all cops now. You all have dumbass friends. You got to be careful with them because you're cops. Okay. And the truth is simple. Everybody has dumbass friends. All right. Idiot friends. Call them what you will. And okay. so did some of these people make, you know, horrible statements online? Yes. And in a closed Facebook group, it's a place where we can say, hey, that was probably not right. Do you really want to say it that way? And sometimes some of them would go, yeah, you know, I, I vented, I raged, I, I was upset. And that, that sucked and I'm sorry. And some of them didn't. But like, am I supposed to abandon the group because of one, two, three, four people? Maybe. Am I supposed to abandon access to that information? Am I supposed to abandon access to the 496 other people who were in the group? Give me a break. So... That's ridiculous. Josh, I, you know, I I get your perspective, but then, you know, you're part of my mock 37 family, um, Mm -hmm. as in Georgia. And, you know, certainly we saw Georgia get commented on in sort of a negative way within that group. Um, yep. And she's your extended family given the mock 37 connection. I mean, what were your sort of thoughts on that? Uh, what you don't see is because the screenshots that were taken were extraordinarily focused, shall we say, were times that I went, hey, 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 chill. That's that's not bad behavior. You're you're seeing her through a, a sort of the opposite of rose-colored glasses, if you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, I'm sure everybody has been in a relationship where at times you're annoyed with your significant other, and everything they do, they can breathe and it annoys you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, there are times when some of these people would be like, ah, and it's like, really? I mean, she, she, she walked across the hall. I'm, I'm making it up. You get the idea. Yeah. Like seriously chill. And that was the case sometimes. I'm going to jump us out of the um, discussion on Ilmob for just a second. Um, and sort of back to DerbyCon. So, I mean, you're a conference organizer of besides Delaware. I imagine that you have come across sort of the same um, problems, similar complaints, um, that I imagine DerbyCon has seen over the years. Um, from your perspective, why do you think DerbyCon actually is in their last year? Um, and then maybe your thoughts on how, again, I assume that, you know, besides Delaware faced, you know, similar things, right? At any conference, heck, at any group or gathering of people, there's going to be some kind of drama, whether it's, you know, uh, and at every conference you've been to, whether it's financial, whether it's venture capital, whether it's infosec, whether it's you know family reunion, there, there's there's always your 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 you know Aunt Mary or Uncle George 
who who has a couple of extra drinks and causes some drama, right? And I'm not claiming that that's what happened. I'm just explaining that this is a normal thing. Now, the smaller the group, the less likely it is to cause drama. Let's be blunt. Uh, besides Delaware is about 500 people. DerbyCon is about 2,500 people. So again, I go back to my point that there are idiot friends in every group and idiots in every group. And the more the, the more people you have, the more of those you'll have in that group, right? So uh, at DerbyCon, we had uh, some drama happen. And let's be blunt, it was drama. And was it wrong? No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it was wrong or right or, or justified or not. I'm just saying it was drama. What specific drama are we referring to here around DerbyCon? Oh, just in general, uh, the DerbyCon this past year, we had, uh, you know, a couple of people get drunk at night and we had to work on them. We had somebody get, uh, you know, uh, somebody who got transported to the hospital and it was a medical issue. It wasn't drinking or anything like that, but it was just like, you know, just getting briefed on that in the morning is terrifying. You know what I mean? Um, and there's all sorts of things that go on. Uh, but I mean, effectively, if it's not fun, why are we doing the conferences? And that's kind of the point. We don't make money on these things. We Trust me. Oh, dear God, we don't make money. I, I could probably count on the tens of thousands of fingers how many dollars were out for B-Sides Delaware over the years. Let's, let's just put it this way. In the eighth or ninth one, we just had the ninth one in November, uh, is the first time that we actually broke even effectively, if I recall correctly. Okay? So for years before that, we were out thousands of dollars a year to run that conference. But... You know, for some kids, it's their Christmas. It's their it's their New Year's. We can't stop. So yeah, it's 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 difficult. And I think that this that the DerbyCon got to the point where it wasn't fun, and that's why Dave said I'm done. So on that, and this can just be in your professional opinion, since you do happen to run events. Is there anything that could have been done to necessarily refrain from pulling the plug on this because? was there anything else in prior derby cons that would lead you guys to just throw your hands up and go, this isn't worth it anymore? Because I feel like it, to me, in in my opinion, and, and I do not know all the background, I will say that off top. Uh, it, it sounds like this is a little bit of a cop-out because I do feel that, yeah, it's supposed to be fun, but don't you think that there could have been something else done that could have kept the con running and kept the fun running and it didn't have to result in everybody losing out because five or 10 people were causing drama in whatever way they were causing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something could have been done, but it's not the question of if it could have been done. The question is, is it worth it to the con organizers to do it? Look, when you're running a business, okay, you have something called opportunity cost. And when I am, I have to balance that opportunity cost of the time I spend running the conference handling the conference, writing up policies for the conference, doing all these things versus the, you know, the business I could be running. And my guess is, and this is just my personal guess, is that that opportunity cost calculation just, well, okay, without the level of fun that it is, without the level of interest and excitement and, and you know, fun, again, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself, that opportunity cost calculation goes, you know what, not happening anymore. So yeah, could there have been stuff done? Absolutely, there could have been stuff done. We could run DerbyCon another year, no problem. We could run DerbyCon, you know, another 10 years. Well, okay, I don't know about that. That's a 
pretty far in the future. Uh, not that I'm saying we couldn't, I'm just saying I can't predict, you know what I mean? Uh, but is it something that meets that calculation? Uh, look, Jen, at, at Mach 37, I learned the only thing that is priceless is time. You don't get any more. So you have to balance what you're doing. I, I decided to be on this podcast. This takes a half an hour of my time or an hour of my time or however long we go. Um, uh, you know, earlier today, I, I've been on the phone most of the day. My, my butt hasn't left this chair except for about 45 minutes to snarf food and cuddle my little one because my wife is sick. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's a calculation every time. And I decided this podcast was worth it because Jen, I know you and you only do things that are worthwhile. You're a very shrewd uh, uh, calculator and you do things that are interesting and worthwhile. And I'm like, it's Jen, I'm going to do it. Period. End of story. Well, thank you. So you're welcome. I mean that. Can we talk about the ill mob stuff again, just real quick, because I want to get your opinion on sort of the way you've seen just the conversations going in that group overall, because look, I, I am not part of the group, but I was given uh, an array of, of screenshots and conversations that went into the group. And it reminds me of the way that Gamergate started in that it talked a lot about at least the framing in Gamergate was this wasn't about a gender thing. This was about, quote, ethics in gaming journalism. And I see some of the parallels there and some of the comments in the ill mob and what's going on, particularly towards some of the women in saying, okay, this isn't about just gender. This is about the meritocracy and them not having the skills to be on par with the the rest of the community. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that and, and whether that, whether you see that as the same way and, or am I just wildly off base? So uh, that's an interesting point you raise, and I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of boil it down a little bit. If you have a group of very very highly skilled people, talented, skilled, a little crazy people, okay, hackers, right? And you say, I'm going to bring a whole group of people in that aren't as skilled. They're gonna look down on them, whether they're male, female, green, purple. African-American, white, doesn't matter, okay? If you tell them these people over here are just as skilled as you or even more skilled and you can learn from them, they're going to look up to them, whether they're male, female, green, purple, African-American, white, doesn't matter. It's literally that simple. Now, if you want to tell me that there's people in that group that didn't like women, I'll probably tell you you're right. If you're going to tell me that there's people in that group didn't like men, I'll probably tell you you're right. I don't know. I'm not going to say that I knew all 500 people in there intimately down to a psychological level, if you know what I mean. Uh, what I'm going to tell you is that there were some people that put some unpleasant things in discussions. Most of those discussions I stayed away from. Uh, some of the discussions I got into, there's there's one that I was talking to a, a gentleman about, you know, he's like, if somebody did that to my wife, I'd, I'd slap him. I'm like, your wife is a very capable lady. You wouldn't slap them. She would. Okay. You wouldn't need to. She'd take care of it and then tell you about it later. <laughs> and that made him feel better. Because he's like, yeah, you're right. My wife is extremely capable. I mean, 
you know, there, there's things that look, it's, it's not about for some of them. It might've been about women. I, I absolutely, I, I don't have any argument there. Uh, for the most of them, it was about a specific individual, whether male or female. I mean, ask anybody in InfoSec, a serious person in InfoSec about Gregory Evans, the self-proclaimed number one hacker in the world. They'll tell you, you know, after they finish falling off their chair laughing, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you he's not. Okay. Um, he's male. He's just not at that level. My point is, are there people that hate women in there? Probably. Are there people that hate, name any race, creed, color, doesn't matter? Yeah, probably. Um, were there people that espoused some of that? Yes. Okay. And the rest of us went, dude, lady, seriously, you know, stop that. It's rude. I, I would push back on that because I, I, I'm, not, I'm not calling you specifically out, but I mean, the group overall, I, I didn't see a lot of pushback. And I get the sense that there wasn't a lot of pushback from other people that I talked to there. And I think that's why so many people are. Where do you, let, me, let me ask you a question. Where do you get that impression? That impression that I got came from the fact that I talked to sources that were in the group. And I also saw screenshots that were in the group, particularly around these conversations. And I didn't see any of that blowback from the group that said, well, that, that, that's not okay. Don't, don't do that. Don't get down in the muck and, and start talking about people like that. It would be one thing. If they okay. Like, I know I did it. Yes. I know you did not do that. I'm talking collectively. No, no, no. I'm saying uh, I did. Uh, I did go and say, hey, stop that. That's rude. Don't say those things. Don't do that. Don't say those things. Don't be rude like that. So, don't be an asshole is what I actually would say. So I don't know exactly what thread this was on, but I certainly saw a thread where um, a group of people were going after someone and I don't remember who it was. And then I, I saw a comment from you okay. that wasn't really in defense of anyone other than actually it was in defense of the people saying the bad things. And it was like, Hey, what they're mad about is that they waited, you know, X weeks or X months after whatever conference the subject was to come out and say they were harassed versus like, hey guys, back off. Yeah, it's, it's, if I know the comment you're talking about, it's, it feels weird seeing a, a report of a criminal act three weeks after the conference on Facebook. It, it's very unusual in my opinion and in my experience. Uh, I've dealt with, Significant numbers of people who have been harassed, uh, attacked, uh, and, and it's not pleasant. You, you, it's it's very common to have people who delay reporting. I, I get that they don't want to make it public. They 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 don't want to be like open about it if that makes sense. Um, but it's very unusual to delay reporting and then do it on Facebook. Uh, that's in my personal experience. I do not claim to be an expert. This is just my personal experience. But I've dealt with people with that kind of issue before. And I've never seen it done that way that the reporting done that way, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, somebody who holds on to something to, to report, to, to, to hold on to it and report about it later, if they ever do, some people never do, let's be honest. And it's horrible. They should never, first off, it should never happen. Nobody should be harassed. Nobody should be assaulted. Nobody should be taken advantage of. It's horrifying. But if somebody is, and then they don't report it, to me, what I have seen in my experience is that they'll either report it to, not necessarily report it, but talk about it to someone they trust, a psychologist, a, a sibling, a parent, a, 
a very, very close friend slash confidant, uh, or they'll go to the police. Normally, if somebody can convince them to do that, um, but it's very rare to have it happen and be out on Facebook. Uh, I've seen some people have the, 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 the mental fortitude and strength, and I respect them immensely that they come right out after it happens with, with sort of a, uh, you know, here, this is what happened and it's public and it's blatant and it's, you know, and it can be on Facebook, but in my experience, it's rare that it, the two coincide. In other words, delay reporting and then put it on Facebook. That was strange to me. And that's what I pointed out. Again, I'm not an expert. I'm going off of my personal experience. So, you know, another one of our uh, Mach 37 family members, um, actually, I think from your cohort, Marcus Carey, um, tweeted um, earlier this week, sort of about being um, discriminated against um, in the community. Um, you know, what could we be doing to sort of change it so things like that don't happen? I mean, Marcus is not somebody that I would... Um, even consider for a moment that not everything that comes out of his mouth is true. Um, Marcus is an incredibly ethical person. I love him dearly. He's a great guy. Um, Marcus absolutely has been discriminated against. He's talked to me about it before. Um, I, I virus who's another African American male in the infosec community has been discriminated against. Um, And uh, you know, Danielle Davis, who's a good friend of mine, lady Nikon, she just, tweeted or sorry, Facebook, I think about how, um, and by the way, she was another member of Ilmob, um, how she's been discriminated against in the, in the community and, you know, and, and things like that. And so what can we do to make it better? Uh, we can make the availability of knowledge and information more extensive and more available and more free so that it's easier for people to get into it. Uh, but you know, that's not enough. You, you, you can't just leave it there and expect people to find it. You have to lead them to it and go, look, look, opportunity. Grab it, man. Grab it, lady. Grab on, you know? And uh, so to that end, you know, there are things like you, you want to make sure that you're making these things not just available, but that you're pushing the knowledge that they are there out, uh, which is why we have a, a conference in Delaware, which is, typically a very low income uh, uh, state and uh, has a high proportion of, uh, we hold it in Wilmington, which is, I think, don't quote me on this, 80% African-American. And we get significant amounts of people from various minorities uh, and and obviously multiple genders to show up and be there. Uh, We love when we can get the students from the local colleges all the way down to the students from the local high schools. And we've had them, we've had local high schools bring groups uh, to come in and be part of the conference. It's why we have such a big spawn camp. I don't know if you've heard of our spawn camp. I have not. Ah, we have spawn camp, which we love. It's awesome. Uh, we get about like 70 or 80 kids every year, uh, ranging from three to, and then they can come younger than that if they want, There's not going to get much out of it, you know, uh, all the way up <laughs> to high school. And, uh, we have, God, I forget. We have like seven potato clocks. You know, you, you plug the thing, the, the, pins into the potatoes and it powers the clock type yep. of thing. Uh, we have those. snap circuits, which the kids freaking love. We've bought uh, either five or 10 pounds of Legos. You can buy Legos bulk on eBay. Really awesome. Did not know this. <laughs> Terrifyingly bad for, for, for my budget, but amazing for my little one. Let's put it that way. Um, 
and we have Raspberry Pis where we teach them to program in Scratch, uh, and we let them play Minecraft, and we we have fun with it, you know. But yeah, every year we have 70 or 80 kids. That's one of the reasons we hold it on a college campus every year. It's a dry campus. There's no alcohol allowed at the conference. Okay. Um, it okay. makes it very easy for the parents, for the kids, for everybody there. We're a very family-friendly conference. People fly from across the world to come to our conference. Weird. Never thought it would happen. But hey, I'm not going to complain. Um, we're really proud of it. So why do you think that... Um you know, given that I think everybody sort of recognizes there's some discrimination within the InfoSec community, um, like really most communities, why do you think a group like Ilmob exists um, where people are making such negative comments and everyone who reads them doesn't like jump on it to be like, hey, don't say things like that? Well, I, I think you asked two questions there. L- let me answer them both. Um, the first one was, why does Ilmob exist? And the second one, no, I got, I got why Ilmob exists. Or I got your explanation from the beginning. Okay. You know, you know, you guys, you know, do some really interesting work. Yeah. Um, and you were saying earlier there's some subsect that are you know bad actors, but well, it, it seems like some of them are just frustrated. Group, I, I want to sort why of why not kick them out? Well, well, why not? I want to, I want to actually point out a couple of things. While very few people are what you might consider, well, kind of bad actors. Quite a few of them are just very frustrated. Uh, tell me where it's safe to vent about a boss. Not on Facebook where someone could take screenshots and tweet them out. In a closed secret group, you know, yeah, I recognize that that did, did happen. But for a long time, in a closed secret group, it was safe. You know, it, it only got tweeted out or, or, or put out there. Because there were some of that, you know, bad stuff going on and that caught the attention of people that could make money on that or could, you know, do unpleasant things with it. I mean, the, 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 the screenshots got tweeted out because of a reporter. Okay. And that reporter, you know, was not supposed to do that, but yeah, the reporters do reporters are going to do now. Where can you vent about your boss? Where can you vent about the people you work with? Where can you vent about, you know, we all live in cyberspace. It's not like we go to a bar and and, and call out, hey, Norm, and, and vent to the guy next to me who has no connection with my business. Quite literally, a lot of the stuff we do, we can't talk about. You know, uh, okay. I, I I feel your point there, but now I think we're we're a little bridge too far. It's one thing to vent about bosses and and that it, and. You could you could rip out people's personal and professional slacks and read their Slack messages about them venting their bosses and get them into a lot of trouble. But I don't I don't think that's what happened with the reporters here. No, you're right. This wouldn't have become a story if it didn't veer into into what is very clearly some very misogynistic comments that are directed. after the DerbyCon stuff. So I don't think it's necessarily a reporter violating something. I think the reporter who I happen to know just was, you know, he was in the group and saw something that was newsworthy. I I don't think it would have been newsworthy if it was just a a Facebook InfoSec engineer going, oh, uh, Shel Sandberg is is driving me nuts today, or Alex Stamos is is really off his rocker about 
this project or that project. I mean, no, we all know that about Alex. It's not a problem. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I, I mean, mean, you're right. I mean, but the, the point is, is that a lot of the things in the group were not that misogynistic stuff. A lot of the things in the group were people venting about whatever. A lot of the things in the group were people venting about, you know, raging. And, and as well, you know, there's that gallows humor af- uh, aspect of people makes, you know, jokes because we're uh, the burnout rate in InfoSec is pretty bad. So you make right. you have gallows humor to, to help with that effectively. But you're right. What, what did that reporter pull out and, and thereby taint everybody with? The stuff that it was the, the the absolute edge, edge cases, if you will. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I'm in secret Facebook groups too, and um, you know, certainly when someone goes that far, they're no longer part of our group. Okay. Right? It's, if it goes and Why? no one's gone that far, but certainly, um, you know, it's it, it's at the point where you know you, you are the company you keep. You know, Jen, not, let me ask you a question. Jen, let me ask you a question. Are you the admin of all those groups? No, I'm not. Okay. So if if you're in a group with 500 people, it's a private secret Facebook group, and you have productive conversations with people in that group all the time, and occasionally on the discussions, there's some jackass who makes horrible comments, and you call him out and say, stop that, and he doesn't, doesn't stop, and the admins of the group don't kick him out because they have this belief that people should say what they need to say or want to say or whatever. So, should you so leave the group? That the reporter that, that posted the screenshots um, of some of the bad comments um, photoshopped out um, all the comments from, from everyone else in the group saying, Hey man, don't say that. Um, I'm going to say that I'm not going to say that I caught every bad discussion that was in there. I have other things that I do with my life than checking every Facebook group I'm in every day. I don't know that I caught those particular discussions, but I know that there's a lot of times that when I did catch something, I said, Hey, stop. That's oh, right. This is not like about you, right? Like I'm just saying like in general, right? Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to be called on for other people's behavior. If, if other people decided to ignore it and not call them out on it, that's, I, I can't, I can't, you know, tell them they're bad people. I can tell you what I did because that's what I know. And I will tell you that of the screenshots that I'm in, I saw a couple. One of them is where I'm telling a guy, hey, your wife is capable and it's horrible that people are harassed and it should never happen. And I don't think I have anything to be ashamed of for saying that. No, no, you don't. And I was actually, um, I, I read that obviously. And I was, I was happy to see it. And, you know, I, I say that kind of thing a lot. I tell people that they're capable. I tell people that they're worthy. I tell people that they, they need to go, you know, stronger, faster, keep going, man, you know, keep going. You're doing awesome. Um, I tell people that what they're doing is wrong. Occasionally my sense of right and wrong is not necessarily somebody else's sense of right and wrong. Fair. And I can't call somebody. I can tell them what I feel. That's fine. That's, that's my opinion. I'm allowed to tell someone that. Can I tell you, Jen, that what you do is wrong? I mean, I, I don't think so. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you are. Please forgive me. I don't mean it that way. But I mean, if, if I tell you you're, you're a horrible human being for X, Y, or Z actions, I absolutely can tell you that I believe that to be so. Yeah. But, and, and I can tell you that, and I'm, I'm okay telling you that. 
And if you work for me and you do something horrible, we're going to have words. Okay. But if you don't work for me and you're not my, my, my sister, my mom, my kid, my whatever, I can only give offer my opinion. Now I can shun you. Absolutely. I can take my company away from you. Not that I'm not that you're like, you, you devote yourself to me or whatever, but you know what I mean? I can shun you. Um, and I can block you and I can leave the group or I can do whatever. Maybe I'm just going to ignore you and not listen to your discussions. And I'll talk to the other people in the group. That's an option. Okay. Yes. And that's your option. And that is your prerogative. And it's also your prerogative to come on here and, and candidly discuss this. Yeah. Thank you. With us. So we, we really appreciate it, Josh. But in a much more lighthearted note, we do end every interview with a random question. And you were just saying that you've welcomed a new baby into the world. So yeah. I'm wondering, have you had a chance to dive into the kids' cartoons yet? And if you have, <laughs> what's the one that annoys you the least? Because I'm there as well. And I definitely will say that I don't have a favorite. But what's the one that annoys you the least? Well, I tell you, if I hear Baby Shark one more time, I'm going to like just freak out. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, I, I am definitely there too. But uh, I mean, she's only, you know, she's not even seven months old and we're trying to reduce screen time for her. Actually, we try not to okay. let her watch too much. As a matter of fact, about the only things we watch are when we're exhausted and we put on like a YouTube of uh, binging with Babish or something. But okay. <laughs> um, in terms of cartoons, you know, the one that annoys me the least is, I don't know. Um, honestly, to be very honest, probably Animaniacs. Oh, wow. Even even for, wow, you're really educating uh, your, your babies there. I thought I, I was going like Nick Jr. stuff. I expected to hear like Peppa Pig or Bubble Guppies or, or something like that. I but, saw Paw Patrol um, recently. And while it is innocuous, while it is cute, while it is cutesy, uh, which is different than cute, let's be clear, um, and, and everything else, it was also, in my opinion, a tad vapid. And I recognize that for two-year-olds, that's appropriate. But oh, dear God. So uh-huh. yeah, Paw Patrol's rough. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah that is rough. I, I, I have quite honestly tried not to watch too much else because I'm sure that as she gets a year old, two years old, whatever, I will be inundated with these bloody things. And I, <laughs> I it's coming, man. I, I'm trying not to. I mean, look, we, we, we have cut off TV to the extent that I'm so far behind on any shows that I attempt to keep up on. It's pretty much a, <laughs> it's a it's a goner. You know what I mean? I I totally understand where you're coming from on that. So, Josh, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Josh. No problem. Thanks again to Georgia and Josh to coming on and speaking candidly about their situations and their experiences with this. Jen, uh, what did you think of of these interviews? What are your thoughts after hearing everything? You know, I I think there were – both great interviews. Um, you know, Georgia and Josh are part of my Mach 37 family. I think very highly of both of them. And I think, um, you know, they're both thinking, and I think we're all thinking of ways to tackle what seems to be a larger problem um, around our community. Yeah, and I think one way overall is to just kind of, Josh talked about it a little bit, but I think there needs to be a little bit more recognition of, of two points. One, if somebody is going to a con, 
whether it's 500 people, 2,500 people, 10,000 people, if they feel threatened to the point where a con isn't fun, I think that's very, very bad for everybody involved. Absolutely. And it's just bad on the community overall. That being said, on the other side, I think that there is a need to get past the juvenile parts of all of this. And I mean that on any side of the argument that if you're going to one of these cons and it's just juvenile behavior, you're all adults, find a way, not not to suck it up. And I, I, there's a difference between juvenile behavior and harassment or sexual assault. A very clear line where if you start to get into something, like I was saying, that makes you feel uncomfortable or fearful, that's unacceptable, full stop. If you're just talking about juvenile behavior, there has to be something inside all of the adults that channels what an adult would really do and just sort of go, "Uh, I'm here professionally. I'm here for a con. Yeah, I can have a good time, but this is juvenile behavior. I'm not going to dignify this, and this isn't going to throw off my entire con. I'm going to move past it and get to what I really want to do, and that's have fun or learn something new or network new. I just feel that on on that sense of it it's stop acknowledging the juvenile behavior when it crosses into something that is yeah. then very threatening or causes somebody harm then i think obviously it is worth going full bore and being angry and trying to stop and i think that everybody involved with with these cons from an organizational perspective would agree with me there they don't want that there they don't need that there and they want to get it out if it ever happens if we're just talking somebody that's acting like a juvenile just ignore it right just ignore it. yeah i mean it doesn't make any sense to see behavior of someone who appears to be saying or writing things like they're in fourth grade you don't need to react like you're also in fourth grade yeah i'm exhausted just thinking about it the fact that there is an angle to all of this that has transpired over the past week week and a half that is so tremendously juvenile yes but Overall, I think the more pervasive point is the harassment stuff has – there's just no place for it. Like we, we've seen this. This goes beyond InfoSec. This is just a societal thing right now where th- there's just no place for it. There's just absolutely no place for it. And I really appreciate Georgia being candid in saying what she's gone through and talking about it publicly and trying to figure out a way that, you know, it doesn't happen for anybody else right. moving forward. Yeah. So really appreciate everybody coming aboard. Great. Thanks again to Josh and Georgia for joining us. And um, until next week, stay curious. See you next week. <laughs>